Welcome back to another episode of the Treat Addiction Save Lives podcast. I'm your host, Zach Caruso, and let me first thank you for tuning in and hanging out with us for another great episode. Um, today, we have an awesome guest. I really enjoyed getting to sit down and talk with him. I'm talking, of course, about Dr. Patrick Beeman. Dr. Beeman is a Catholic, a husband, a father, physician, proud Ohioan, quantum philosopher, media producer, Man, this guy has such a cool story. I want to be Dr. Beeman when I grow up. He's board certified in OBGYN and addiction medicine. He's the medical director of the innovative natural women's health practice, Veranova Health, as well as Medmark Treatment Centers, Amherst, which is an opioid treatment program. And some of you may recognize another project he founded. Uh, that would be the USMLE prep platform inside the boards. And he's also the founder of the health media and creativity company, Ars Longa Media. Uh, Dr. Beeman was so much fun to talk with. He's got such a fascinating and philosophical outlook on medicine and treatment. So let's get into it. Here's our chat with the very cool Dr. Patrick Beeman. Well, today we're here with Dr. Patrick Beeman. Dr. Beeman, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We're really excited to uh, to have you on for an episode for National Addiction Treatment Week. Um, we were talking a little bit before, and I've read through your bio. You're a really interesting guy. Um, you've got a background as, uh, you're an air force veteran. Um, you're a musician, you treat addiction. I would love to hear all of these things and how they kind of all come together, um, and brought you where you are today on your journey. So I'll let you take it away. Tell me a little bit about your background, especially uh, your, your time in the air force, um, and, and how it kind of led to what you do now, what you're doing today and the projects you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, <sighs> So I went to medical school at the University of Toledo. Um, I had studied philosophy and theology actually as an undergrad, and then actually got a master's in philosophy. Uh, it was around the time of September 11th, I think, when I was a junior and about the time in college, and about the time that I was deciding on what to do with the rest of my life and ended up settling on, you know, I think I'm going to pursue medical school. Um, and because of the whole September 11 context, um, a lot of people were interested in, in joining the military. I think more so, um, there was that solidarity at that time than at other times in, um, at least, uh, the history of my life thus far. Uh, I was very close to joining uh, the Marines so that I could become a translator because I loved languages. Um, and eventually my family convinced me that uh, I shouldn't do that and should continue on with education. Um, so as I finished my undergrad and did the coursework that's required for medical school, I went and got a master's in philosophy, like I mentioned. Um, but joining the military always like stood in the back of my mind. I, you know, I'm a patriot, I guess. Um, and so when the time came to apply to med school and I got in, um, it was kind of a natural step for me to join the air force, um, and, and to serve my country, um, in that way. So, um, the, you know, the Air Force and military medicine in general is interesting because the patient 
is is very healthy. You know, you have a lot of health standards, uh, fitness standards to be on active duty, um, and even the family members that that you treat. Um, there just tends to be a, a very positive uh, health uh, promoting culture, and um, my residency training in OBGYN was a combined military and civilian program. Uh, the civilian side of things is probably where we spent about 80% of the time. And it's inner city uh, Dayton, Ohio, uh, which itself has uh, been affected significantly by opioid addiction. And, and um, back in 2012, I think, uh, it was, we, we saw a lot of like meth and, um, in any case, lots of exposure to addiction in, in pregnancy context. Um, the 20% of the time I, I spent at the base and then subsequently on active duty service, uh, I did not see much addiction at all, certainly not in the pregnant population. And, you know, the, the military for all its uh, positives, does have some tension in terms of the the culture around alcohol. Um, it, sometimes there's a little too much, I think, promotion of you know uh, events being kind of centered around drinking, um, but that didn't tend to be an experience I would take care of clinically. In fact, I'm pretty sure. Four years on active duty at Scott Air Force Base, um, I saw one positive urine drug screen, and it was for marijuana, um, like isolated throughout one entire pregnancy. Uh, so <laughs> it's it's a different experience um, than maybe somebody who treats veterans in like the VA healthcare system, or perhaps psychiatrists in um, an active duty medical context. Uh, but at least on the pregnancy and, and women's health side of things in military medicine, there there wasn't a lot of addiction exposure um, in 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 my practice. So. I, the, but this sort of sandwich existed where I had been exposed to a lot of um, patients who suffer from addiction um, during residency. And I just found that I always kind of vibed, as the, the kids say, uh, with these patients. We got along well. Um, and they, I don't know, they just kind of felt like my people. Um, and so throughout my active duty training, it always sat in the back of my mind, like, man, I really like, you know, treating these patients. It's interesting. I, I think I do a good job, like connecting with them. Um, and when I got out in 2017, uh, came back to my hometown of Lorraine, Ohio, which is close to Cleveland and, uh, got into a practice context civilian wise that was very much like you know, residency, where we do have a huge problem with opiate addiction in the hospitals that I cover as an OB laborist. Um, and that just kind of reignited my interest in, in treating addiction uh, clinically. And so that started me in 2017-18 on the path of figuring out how I could get into treating addiction um, as an OBGYN. And uh, 
I mean, I could go on and I feel like I'm rambling, but <laughs> not at all. And it's, it's a, it's an interesting path. And I think that you're probably the first person that we've talked to that's in this space. And I would love to hear what are some of the specific challenges? What are the opportunities? What are the things that you see specifically because you're, we're talking the context of women's health, right? What are some things that you've seen in the past few years that you've now been in this space treating addiction that might be unique to your space as opposed to what other folks might be dealing with who are treating addiction in other spaces? Yeah. So, I mean, part of specifically the message, you know, treat addiction, save lives for, for me is there is widespread in healthcare, even, especially where it shouldn't be in healthcare, um, stigmatization around substance use disorders, um, specifically, and, and honestly, still a lot of things that relate to mental health, um, in pregnancy specifically though, I feel that pregnant women who have a substance use disorder are some of the most stigmatized, abandoned, neglected uh, patients that that come through our hospitals. Uh, and and part of this is you know systems issues, uh, you know access to um, you know evidence based treatments for opiate use disorder, for instance, um, aren't necessarily very robust in a, a lot of communities. Um, like your you know average medical <laughs> average middle America um, kind of town like that I live in, um, and so that's the thing I've. I think I've seen the most is there is a, a kind of ad hoc approach to treating these patients and that the addiction component of, of their lives, the, their um, uh, experience of, of health or disease um, is, is not treated directly. Um, and when providers, clinicians, all throughout like the healthcare team encounter these women, I, I feel on the whole, um, the the patients are left without a uh, without encouragement uh, pursuing their health and their goals. Because I, I mean, my experience has been with uh, pregnant women. Um, just in general, like, you know, to, to me, <laughs> I couldn't do it, <laughs> like literally um, could not do it. Um, but even if I could, I, it, it just seems way too much to deal with to um, gestate, bear, and then, you know, raise kids. But there is, there is something about, um, it seems, motherhood that, that really pulls women outside of themselves and, uh, really inspires them to, you know, simple things, eat healthier, um, get rid of bad habits, um, you know, try to get their, their schedule or lives in order to welcome a baby. Um, families tend to kind of rally around the, um, the woman a little bit more. So there's, you know, this opportunity for encouragement. Um, and so it provides a really opportune uh, instance to kind of initiate treatment um, 
in, in, uh, you know, a healthcare context. So, yeah. So, <laughs> but, and you started to touch on it and I'm really curious because during treatment week, we talk a lot about stigma and trying to end the stigma, break it down. We know that it's a barrier to treatment. I'd be really interested to hear again in that context and space, because you talked about the stigma around pregnant women, especially, um, what is the current state of that stigma? What, you know, what does it look like? What kind of things do you see happen? And in your opinion, what could be done to reduce it? So I would say the state of it is one of uh, slowly improving. <laughs> so uh, let me talk about my community. Um, so I'm I'm in Lorain, Ohio, like I mentioned, near Cleveland. So you know we're we're Midwest. Um, uh, the hospital where I practice is a community hospital. Um, our community lost a hundred and. 41 lives to overdose last year, and we were able to cut that down to 119 um, this present year. Um, and I have been working as the medical director for an opioid treatment program uh, for about three and a half years now. And what I have seen throughout this time is, I mean, a lot of stories about ER or in patient context with respect to, you know, treating patients with dignity. Um, but I have also seen that by my own efforts, just connecting with colleagues, whether it's, you know, writing a, a letter like uh, to some, like a consultant and saying, hey, I have this patient who is on, you know, methadone for opiate use disorder. And then I've kind of developed a uh, educational <laughs> kind of list of bullet points like, hey, just wanted to let you know, like, you know, this patient's doing well or, um, you know, if if you're prescribing uh, other medications that have sedative effects, like be careful, um, you know, I would encourage you to, um, you know, monitor uh you know, their uh, uh, EKGs, for instance, if it's methadone, and um, be careful prescribing drugs that do XYZ. Um, I, I feel that that has helped other clinicians um, be willing to, to kind of treat these patients better. And that's the feedback I get, too. Um, another simple thing I've done is, is just give my phone number to the ER director and made sure that, um, hey, if any of my patients come in uh, to the ER, um, do you mind like giving me a call just to let me know? And so that's provided a lot of opportunities like uh, just to answer questions. Hey, this, this patient came in, said that they were not able to obtain um, the medication that uh, was dispensed during dosing hours at our um, opioid treatment program. Um, what do we do? And so then I, you know, can take a couple minutes and be like, here's a little bit about the pharmacology of methadone and, you know, uh, update them about the fact that they, they are allowed to treat um, people in opiate withdraw um, without having any special uh, license in an ER, um, at least uh, up to three days. Um, 
and and those sorts of things, mostly education, communication, and networking with uh, other colleagues has been helpful at improving um, the status of stigma within my community. Um, culturally, I would say that mental health is, you know, huge now. Um, certainly, if you look at any content creation platform, about uh, mental health topics, um, addiction definitely being one of them. Uh, not all of it's good. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of uh, personal stories being shared, which I think do have value. Um, and so the conversation is getting out there. Um, I think the biggest problem is the fact that there's a disconnect between the world that um, people who suffer from opiate addiction in particular live in um, and, and those who don't. Um, and, and, and getting these two kind of communities to understand, uh, especially the, the non-affected, um, you know, people in our communities to, to understand the plight of those families and the individuals who suffer from addiction is, is, is something that we all can kind of do through, you know, our sphere of influence, even if it's two, three, four people, those two, three, four people um, are treating patients, then that, that does have a measurable, you know, noticeable impact in a community um, or in a hospital system. So I, I, I could really ramble from this. <laughs> well, and what's curious, too, is we talked to another provider earlier in the week named Dr. Nick Christian, who's also a younger provider. In a similar way, uh, he's got a mobile, you know, they go out mobily and work in the community. They're going to people's residents on the street. Um, and he was talking about, you know, he has kind of an approach that he feels if, if he can just sort of chip away at it, that he can make a little bit of a difference. You're saying a lot of the same things. You know, you're giving your number to the ER directors and saying, call me if you, you know, here's what I would do. And and trying to make those differences. You talked a little bit about, you know, the mental health topic being something that's really discussed a lot now. Do you feel that with a little bit of maybe the changing the guards, a new generation of providers with a different perspective, do you think that that's helpful on this road to sort of shifting the way people look at addiction, treat addiction? I know I've heard a lot of doctors say early on in their career, they're kind of told, don't bother. It's not worth, you know, those aren't the patients that you want. And a lot of people come to it later and realize it's a very rewarding uh, pursuit. So I'm curious, do you think that this kind of um, look at what can, what can I do personally to just make a small difference? Do you feel that's starting to grow and make a larger difference? Yeah, I, I do. Um, absolutely. You know, uh, so I um, uh, myself have a, a media project that has like 20 plus podcasts and, and growing. And a lot of them are, uh, well, all of them are, are focused on medical education, um, mental health, and like just pretty much anything health related. Mm -hmm. And just so, just so our listeners know, we're talking about ours longer media right now, right? Yes. Yes. Tell me about um, that. Cause that's, that leads perfectly into it. Um, this is a media company that you co-founded when you were, uh, kind of pursuing your medical career. So what, what do you guys have going on and what are you uh, pursuing with this? What are you trying to accomplish with the media company? Yeah. Well, you know, media is where culture changes. Um, I think that that is, patently obvious if you look at 
social uh, media and the rise of it um, over the past decade. Um, and it's not always for good. Um, it's not always for ill either. Um, I think that the greater interest in mental health topics with average real people who suffer from or know people who suffer from mental illness talking about this sort of thing um, is really effective at getting people to consider treatment. Um, just personal story, when I was in medical school, uh, second year, um, going from philosophy to medical school was quite the adjustment. So um, there was a lot of stress involved and I, I ended up suffering my own like bout of depression. And um, I, I remember thinking like, I don't want to go see the the psychiatrist at, at the school because then people would know I'm seeing a psychiatrist. And, and I have seen throughout the past decade that that sort of sentiment has kind of gone more and more to the wayside. It's still present. Honestly, it's very present. It seems to me in, in physicians um, who personally, you know, or don't necessarily want to get treated for uh, uh, mental illness. Um, but uh, to me, this is all of a piece. So Ars Longa Media grew out of my work on um, a one podcast I started in my uh, bedroom, classic, um, called Inside the Boards. My goal was to help medical students prepare for their United States medical licensing exams by providing, um, you know, on-the-go study resources, you know, maybe save them a little time um, if they can, you know, learn some stuff while they're listening to their headphones, working out or commuting, commuting or like brushing their teeth, whatever. Um, but I, I did know that I wanted to do more or be involved in more things in media because of its uh, potential to impact um, culture and uh, a growing sense that the sorts of media that was um, being produced is not necessarily helping our culture, for instance, have conversations between people who disagree on fundamental issues, which is a large part of what I feel I learned to do in my undergrad studying philosophy. Um, and, you know, definitely, I think we've all seen the polarization of, of um, culture in, the, in digital uh, spaces. Um, and so, as I developed inside the boards and, and you know, focused on helping medical students, um, I actually connected with ASAM back in 2020, I believe it was. And I was like, I want to do an addiction 101 series for medical students. Uh, working with uh, Dr. Kara Poland um, in, in Michigan, who runs um, the My Cares program, which kind of walks people um, who are attendings like me, um, who are interested in getting board certified through the practice pathway to board certification that the American Board of Preventive Medicine um, offers until 2025 for, you know, all you out there who may be interested, it's still possible. Um, 
so we did this addiction 101 series uh i think the stats that at the time were that during medical school um, the average student got something like three four hours of specifically dedicated didactics related to addiction during the four years of medical school and um, our podcast was getting like 15,000 medical students, um, you know, roughly 10-ish percent of medical students um, in their first uh, four years on the journey to becoming a doctor. And we were able to do this series on addiction, which secondarily meant that I got to talk to a lot of people um, who know a lot more about addiction medicine uh, than I do and got a bunch of free, great didactics. Um, so there, there was that. But, but also a lot of, you know, I, I think we made somewhat of an impact on getting um, the idea that addiction is a chronic brain disease. Um, it belongs uh, in the category um, of illness or disease. Uh, medicine, you know, presumably um, is devoted to the eradication of disease, um, the amelioration of pain and the promotion of health. So kind of fits the domain of what we're supposed to do as doctors. Um, I've always been concerned about medical students. I have observed with medical students that there is a certain idealism that impels all of us to go into this profession. And to a certain extent, it kind of gets trained out of you as you go through med school, then residency, and get into the <laughs> trappings of the modern healthcare system. And I think that's absolutely tragic. I think it contributes to persistent stigmatization um, of people with mental illness and addiction in particular. Um, and I think that we can use media um, to kind of change that conversation, to, you know, ask questions that prompt more thought. Um, certainly to be able to show people that, you know, I, I mean, it, it is, you know, we don't really like to use the word crazy uh, <laughs> in mental health context. Patients do um, all the time, um, but I'll, I'll try to avoid that. But it is surprising, I guess, to me um, that, that we have medications that can rebalance the way a person's physiology is supposed to be. I see addiction as a disease of, of the will, you know, a, a, a disease that affects a person's ability to make a free choice. Like if you're compelled to do something, um, someone says you have to go rob the bank or, you know, we're going to harm your family, um, that in the law even, um, and certainly in like moral philosophy, diminishes a person's responsibility from a moral perspective for that act. The goal of treating addiction is the restoration of somebody's life, right? Um, I, like I tell patients, like being able to help match who you want to be with who you are, which is kind of a universal human experience that just 
comes to light a lot more uh, starkly uh, in the context of treating addiction. But you can treat addiction. You can give medications. You can help encourage people um, to put things into their life that um, help them uh, get healthy relationships, improve their sleep, you know, eat better, exercise, um, have a plan for life. Addiction takes a lot of that away, um, often all of it to the great detriment of, you know, the social connections that people have. Um, you know, Thomas Aquinas, one of my favorite uh, philosophers, um, defined uh, love as willing the good for somebody else. Um, and if addiction can be thought of as a disease of the free will, um, it just makes sense that addiction negatively impacts people's ability to love or uh, to give themselves to others. And it leads to this just pervasive emptiness um, that it is incredibly rewarding to see filled with better things in life as you walk with a patient that you're treating. Um, and that that's just what I would like, you know, charge my, my colleagues with, and especially medical students to really consider as they're, you know, setting up their practice. Like number one, hospital may tell you to do X, Y, Z, um, however, you are a physician and you have primarily a moral um, set of obligations to practice your art for a patient's good. So you should not be content to do things that are less than what patients need. Um, hence, you know, being involved in some sort of advocacy, you know, within your own personal sphere of influence or larger um, is important. Um, but there are so many ways that you can improve the um, care of people who suffer from substance use disorders. You know, I mean, the simplest is, you know, I don't, I, not to be a dick um, would be how I would put it to my patients. Um, probably a more uh, appropriate way to say it for a medical uh, professional context might be don't be a jerk to people. Um, I mean, it's kind of basic stuff, but meeting a patient and treating them with dignity who suffers from addiction, that might be one of the few experiences of that that they've had in a while or, you know, as long as they can remember or maybe ever. And a 10 minute ER interaction does not need to leave a patient once they're discharged, feeling even worse about themselves, more shame. Like what's that going to do? I mean, we are no better or no worse than any of our patients. We are supposed to be healers and um, fight to hold on to that idealism that gets trained out of a lot of us throughout our journey to, you know, becoming uh, physicians. Mm -hmm. I also wonder too, you know, because uh, you have a, a very comprehensive look at like the things that are going on and, and what a lot of the people dealing with addiction need and, and how it improves their lives. I also wonder, you know, from the medical perspective, also from the, the ours long of the media perspective, how do you think that everyone, artists, musicians, physicians, recovery organizations, uh, peer support groups, how can everyone kind of 
work together or work in a more kind of cohesive way to, uh, you know, fight the stigma or, or just improve these situations for people? Do you feel that there is a way? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, <laughs> I've really actually turned my attention with, um, the kind of like media content creators that we're trying to bring on to our, um, network. And we're kind of moving ours longer media, uh, at least at this time. And I, I don't know if it'll continue forever, um, but certainly I don't have plans to really focus on much else right now than bringing together people who are talking about recovery um, or addiction medicine who are involved in creating content to educate um the general public or, um, you know, physicians or other um, clinicians on um, how to treat or understand um, addiction. And so the, the passion project that I have been sketching out in, you know, loose ways initially, actually, when I, I remember the first call about this medical student addiction 101 series, uh, I, I still have like the little notes, but I was like, we could do this. And I was jotting things down and it's taken shape as what we call our addiction recovery project. Um, and that is three components principally that we would like to do. One is to create a, a new addiction recovery related podcast um, that will launch um, or that will comprise a thematic season. So we do like addiction and the music industry or addiction and comedians or, you know, something that makes it worth you know, listening to for a general audience, but has that sort of like didactic bent in terms of just educating people. And, and because I'm a, a physician, there's always this kind of like, how does this relate to health uh, thing in, in the back of my mind? Um, and so uh, we want to launch this project with the first season of this podcast being focused on musicians telling um, stories of their own recovery um, and how um, getting treatment improved their lives and impacted their art. Um, and there's a lot of musicians and other creative types, like even a lot of my patients who, you know, they're, their addiction may have taken their ability to complete their education. Um, but, you know, it's like, hey, what do you want to do with your life? Or like, what are you into? And they're like, oh, actually, I draw. And, I'm, you know, okay, well, what do you draw? And then they show me these elaborate, very talented things. And it's like, hmm, I, I, <laughs> there seems to be at least phenomenologically a connection between people who have a tendency towards um, developing addiction and those who have gifts of creativity beyond um, a lot of us. Uh, and I don't know that that's something that can be um, studied in a randomized controlled trial way, um, but there is still data in terms of, you know, the experience that a lot of us have. I mean, how many songs deal with the struggle of a person against their, you know, demons, um, which I mean, modern 
juice world that poor kid lost his life at like 21 um to really severe addiction um you know things stand out to me like uh johnny cash's version of trent reznor from nine inch nails song hurt um where johnny cash made that song his own um and it was born a lot out of his own experiences uh, having an unhealthy relationship with alcohol um and so we want to find artists we want to make a an album of cover songs related to addiction and recovery um and then we want to put that out to the world and to third component support um a cultural shift in how people talk about view or um, act towards uh, all topics addiction and and to me um, you know supporting the treat addiction save lives initiative is is a huge part of that like it's a simple message but it's those are often the most effective. It's something that physicians can understand. It's something that patients can understand and their families who are often going to be essential components to getting people to get their lives back. So um, hopefully that answered your question. There are certainly a lot of words there. <laughs> no, it absolutely does. And I wonder, I, I have one last question for you. Since it's it's treatment week, we're talking about treat addiction, save lives. One of the things we're doing this week is sharing stories of hope as well. And I wonder, do you have a story or a patient interaction, something over the years that, that kind of stands out to you as a, a success story or something that was impactful to you that you'd like to share with our audience? Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> I have tons of them. Um, but let, let me say this for people um, who are my colleagues or who are uh, trainees um, in, in, you know, their medical education journey. Um, it's kind of the little things that are even more professionally satisfying. I, I, I think would be the term a lot of people would use. Um, but the, those things that, um, make me feel like I'm fulfilling my vocation as a doctor. The thing that I kind of thought my life would look like once I became a doctor, when I was a pre-med studying like, you know, bio 101 sort of thing, um, where you don't have an idea really of <laughs> what physicians do. Um, and it's, it's the fact that, you know, in my main clinical practice activity, as the medical director of an opioid treatment program, um, we were focused on opiate addiction. And it has a very, you know, um, observable, uh, uh, definable um, natural history, the, the disease opiate use disorder does. Um, but also it has a somewhat predictable and common um, you know, uh, improvements uh, or a set of improvements that you you see in terms of the patient's health as people get into treatment. And I mean, this is very general, but it's these little things day by day that I've learned. It's helped me to counsel patients when they come in. And, you know, somebody if somebody comes to get treated for opiate addiction, um, they're there because if they don't take opioids, they're going to be sick 
And, you know, I, I'm sure I've heard people say, yeah, serves them right or some negative stuff like that. But, um, uh, we don't say that to other people. Certainly if you had a severe flu, um, or COVID, um, and had all the muscle aches and, and, you know, severe vomiting and diarrhea and inability to regulate your body temperature. I mean, it looks awful. Um, and it looks way worse than, you know, what the average person experiences during flu season if they get, you know, influenza or, or another kind of common infectious disease that we've all, you know, have some experience with. Um, and so you're, you're, you're talking to them and, uh, they seem hopeless. They feel hopeless. They say they're hopeless. They're full of shame. It takes a lot to be like, Hey, I have a problem with heroin or fentanyl. Um, because that, that is embarrassing for people. It doesn't need to be. It is, I think in large part because of the failure of physicians and healthcare kind of people to be places where people can share, um, whatever, you know, they want or need to with somebody without, you know, suffering negative judgment or shame. Um, but talking to these patients being like, look, just give me two weeks on this medication. And I promise you, you will start to see a light, right? You're, it's going to take, you know, potentially years to get your life back or to get your life to where you want it to be. But if you can give it two weeks, you will start to see hope. If you can give it a month, just keep showing up, then you probably will find that you feel a little bit better about yourself. Like, you know, you don't feel as bad about your past choices because you're looking forward to who you, you know, to your potential and who you can become. You probably will have a little bit more money, um, which is a very tangible, practical thing super helpful if you've you know lost everything because of uh, the the disease um and then yeah this just tends to be the little thing you see every day um and that's really what stands out to me like honestly my patients thank me all the time and i mean pregnant women who don't have addiction are often thankful too i'm not saying like my patients who don't suffer from opiate problems um, aren't thankful, but it, the frequency with which people thank me or um, thank like our counselors at, at, um, at, at my clinic or, or the nurses, uh, it, it does seem to be like way higher a percentage. Um, and, and a lot of it is just because we're treating them with human dignity. Um, so, yeah, that's what stands out to me. It's the slow things they get back. I'm taking care of an outstanding warrant for, you know, possession of a, a substance. Now I can, you know, pay a fine that's been looming over my head because our justice system seems to be built on uh, a preferential option for um, sticking it to the poor. Um and, you know, people get their licenses back, people get their kids back if they've had like interruptions and, in, you know, custody um, arrangements, they 
cut off relationships that are unhealthy and learn what healthy relationships are and get healthy ones. Um, they get jobs, they go to school, um, they enroll in a, a class of something that just interests them, which is a huge win to find something that interests you when you can't think of anything else about than like not getting sick from a lack of opiates. So, so yeah, it's, there are a lot of individual stories that are absolutely awesome and amazing, but it's, it's kind of the day-to-day stuff that you get to see measurable improvement week by week, month by month that I think stands out to me the most and is the most rewarding part of doing this um, sort of clinical work. Amazing. Well, Dr. Patrick Beeman, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on National Addiction Treatment Week. It has been fantastic speaking with you. I hope we get to talk again soon. Absolutely. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check out our show notes to learn more about Dr. Beeman uh, and all of his awesome projects like Inside the Boards and everything that he has going on over at Ars Longa Media as well. Um, And you're going to hear me say this all week long. You already know it. It's Treatment Week now through the 22nd. So use that hashtag Treatment Week to stay up to date with everything that we have going on and visit treataddictionsavelives.org if you want to learn more and get involved. We'll catch you in the next episode. And until then, treat addiction, save lives.